So we are, in our studies of going through the New Testament, we are up to Jesus' arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to complete that tonight. And next week, Lord willing, we'll begin the trial. So we have a few more things to do regarding our Lord's arrest that Thursday evening. And um, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that uh, you gave your son and that he was committed to do your will and that he voluntarily uh, gave himself up uh, to be arrested by the hands of ungodly leaders and rulers as we've been seeing here, as he would offer himself up as that sacrifice to redeem us and reconcile us to you. So deepen our appreciation of these things tonight as we have an opportunity to look at at them in your word. Lord, we ask that you would uh, uh, bless those suffering among us uh, with physical issues. We continue to pray for Frida and for Bill Carson and for Ann Bogert and, and Bill Sutton and Lord and, and others. Lord, be near your people as you've committed to be and uh, teach us to, to love one another and to love others as we love ourselves. Uh, Lord, we pray for the progress of your gospel in our own hearts, in our families, in our, in our city, in our nation. Uh, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We just plead that you would pour him out in a greater measure. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we stopped. Uh, actually, it was from page 205. It was when Peter assaulted the high priest's servant, Malchus, and cut off his right ear. And uh, <clears throat> we were around Matthew 26, 51. Um, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him, and fled. So that's the focus of our text tonight. We'll look at this in all four Gospels as, as we study this. And um, you will remember that um, Peter had a little bit of encouragement, right, as far as striking with the sword. What interesting thing did we look at last week that most of us forget that happened that evening? having to do with Peter striking with the sword. Was, was, that, what is, was it only Peter's idea? How do you know that? Why wasn't it only Peter's idea? 
That's correct. It wasn't only Peter's idea. Who's, who, who else's idea might it have been? I don't think it's Mark. You don't think it's Mark? <laughs> All right, let's read here in Luke. Um, we're reading in Luke, uh, but Jesus said to him, said to Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw, those plural, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they, plural, right? They said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So that's more than Peter, isn't it? Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So it wasn't only Peter's idea contemplating, now's the time. Now, Jesus never didn't give an affirmative and Peter didn't wait. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, and that was Peter. But the others were contemplating whether this was now the time to engage in physical violence to protect Jesus, their Savior. And uh, so that's where we left off last week. And uh, Jesus... uh, Uh, is going to heal, heal that servant. So I'm on page 206 now in the left-hand column. And let's see, yeah, Matthew 26, 51. Let's go back there and we'll continue there. Uh, How does Jesus respond? Uh, Let's ask this question first. Where did this sword come from? Where did it come from? And what were the swords of the others? What swords did they have? They asked, shall we strike with the sword? Were these swords the ones that were up in the upper room? Probably not, because there was only two. (laughs) And it sounds like they have more than two swords here. So these probably aren't the ones that came out of the upper room. And um, they may all have them. The, The term used here is that it is a sword, it's a small sword, and it may have been not much longer than a dagger, a relatively short sword, the lexicon says, a relatively short sword, or other sharp instrument, sword, dagger. And so, assuming it was a short sword, we can visualize Peter standing face to face, an arm's length away, to the high priest's servant. I mean, it's a short sword. He lobs his ear off, and we have this mob here. So he is like, you know, he is face to face in order for him to pull this off. I mean, that just struck me. I mean, they were, they were right there. He was right there, and he took off his ear. Now, I'm surprised that Peter's assault did not immediately trigger an equally hostile response from those that did come out with clubs and swords. It almost, to me, looks like a miracle. I I don't know. The fact that Peter did this and the others don't strike back, that's a hard thing to explain. How, How did that happen? So Jesus, of course, immediately reproved Peter 
put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish. Uh, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And Luke informs us that Jesus answered Peter. He answered Peter and said, Permit even this. Permit even this. And then it's Luke that tells us Jesus healed Malchus. And he touched his ear, Jesus touched Malchus's ear, and healed him. And um, once again, Jesus is in control of the mob and his own disciples. Is, is, is like Jesus is in control of everything that's unfolding here. Um, and I think Jesus, he, Jesus immediately he healed Malchus, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. And uh, perhaps even while Jesus was speaking to Peter, is he was he healed Malchus, and I think it came down like that. Peter strikes, Jesus starts to speak to Peter and heals Malchus. It just happens about that fast, and uh, there's no uh, violent uh, reaction to this. And so now, from the four Gospels, we learn. Jesus said five things to Peter that are all very significant right at this juncture. And from Luke, we have this short, permit even this. He tells Peter to permit even this. In other words, in spite of how terrible you consider what's happening here, Allow it, permit it. Don't try to stop it. Permit even this. Don't resist it, permit it. That was Jesus' command to Peter uh, as recorded in Luke. Matthew, we have this response to Peter. And perhaps it went, permit even this. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So Jesus gives a warning that Jesus is not of this world kingdom will not be established by the sword as during the theocracy. Jesus' behavior at his arrest surely as part of why Pilate came to the conclusion that this man is no threat. Remember what Jesus told Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. His servants didn't fight. And so I'm sure Pilate was aware of this. He issued the Roman detachment to go and capture the insurrectionist. Pilate was probably thinking, well, this is one more time when we're going to have to squash the insurrectionist. It wouldn't be the first time that Pilate had squashed an insurrectionist. But this time, the report that comes back to Pilate is what? There was no fight. 
So my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. Uh, so that goes with Peter, all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. What else did Jesus say? Number three there, talking to Peter, the others can hear this. Or do you think I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Good question. <laughs> uh, he could do that. Jesus doesn't need Peter to defend him. Okay. Uh, he doesn't need Peter to defend him. He could ask and receive 12 legions of angels from the Father. But Jesus has already prayed three times, correct? Not my will, but yours be done. So he's not going to ask. He also says, how then, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? That's important. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, Peter, that it must happen thus? So Jesus gives the reason why he will not ask the Father for 12 legions of angels. Correct? The scriptures must be fulfilled. He could ask for 12 legions of angels, but he can't, he's not going to do that because if he did, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? So he's not going to ask. Jesus is keenly aware that this is the Father's plan. This is the Father's plan. And he always does the will of the Father. It must happen. I'm quoting from Carson here. This divine must is not for Jesus sheer inevitability. And Carson expresses what I tried to express a week or so ago. You know, we, we, lean, we lean back in the sovereignty of God. It's inevitable. God's going to take care of it, right? But when Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father, it's not like that. It's like... I need to do it in order for that sovereign will to happen. And it's not sheer inevitability for Jesus. He has to make it happen. And so Carson's got the, the right word there about this divine must. Uh, this divine must is not for Jesus' sheer inevitability since he still believes it is possible to gain instant aid from his father. Instead, it is the commingling of divine sovereignty and Jesus' unflagging determination to obey his father's will, end quote. And so Jesus is laying down his life. He's not calling for 10, 12 legions of angels and you know, maybe you could make that into a theological conundrum. You know, had Jesus called for 12 legions of angels, would he have been disobeying the Father? Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to think so when he says, I could do this, I could call for 12 legions of angels. But those kind of things are speculation. 
You know, would the, would our redemption have been called off? What if Jesus had called for those 12 legions of angels? You and I would be lost. Right? That's right. We'd be lost. So, but he's emphasizing to Peter that you don't need to defend me at this point. And I'm obviously going to lay down my life. So, so he does that. Jesus also said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. I'm now quoting from John, but he adds something. John gives us one more piece of information in this interaction. Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And of course, we saw that the, the analogy of the cup, the, the, the illustration of the cup is from the Old Testament. And, uh, and it would be God's wrath is mixed to full strength in the cup. And those that are being judged have to drink it down to the dregs. That's the idea of the cup. It's, it's in those judgment passages of, of drinking the cup. And shall I not drink the cup uh, which um, my Father has given me. Now, you know, stop and think about this stuff. It, this the cup. The Father has this cup. And it's filled with what? The wrath of God. And what does the Father do with that cup? He gives it. He hands it over to the Son. You know, you know, think the imagery through. That's what the text says. That's just, I mean, who loves us more, the Father or the Son? You, you, can't, you can't really figure that question out. You know, would you do that with your son? <laughs> but look at the imagery there, the, the cup that the Father has given me. Father gives him the cup. And that cup is filled with all the wrath that you and I deserve so richly. That's powerful, isn't it? Okay. And Jesus says, yes, I certainly shall drink it. That's, that's very powerful. Uh, so... Let that, let that, let us hang on to that, that imagery in our minds. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> Peter has yet to grasp. Indeed, who really could grasp what has taken place here? You know, Peter hasn't grasped it. Could anybody really grasp this at the time before it's all done? You know. Maybe, maybe the maybe Mary, who Jesus said she's anointed me for my burial. I don't know. You know, I mean, she 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 demonstrates some insight that Jesus is going to die. You know, but but you know, who could grasp? But yet Jesus reproves them on the road to Emmaus, not knowing the scriptures, not properly knowing the Old Testament. 
and, and he says, you know, there's enough there that you should have been able to understand this. So, um, don't know. But Peter doesn't, they don't grasp it at this moment at all. Um, as, you know, what is taking place. And so I, I, I didn't have time to count them up, but this is, I don't know, the sixth, seventh, or the eighth time that evening that Jesus made such statements that he must do the Father's will and he must fulfill the Scriptures. He's done that about eight times, I'm just guessing, that one evening, over and over again, he's telling them that's what he's doing. The fact that those with Jesus asked if they could strike with the sword, and Peter does strike with the sword, it shows us that they really were they were ready to fight. Uh, they, they were they were ready to engage in a physical fight. And I would go as far as to say that at that moment, they were ready to die with him in a, in a physical fight like David with the Philistines. <laughs> they were ready to do that. And, um, <clears throat> uh, but they didn't, you know, Jesus did not say, yes, let's do it. But they are thinking about the types of heroism that was celebrated during the Maccabean revolts. They're thinking about the Maccabean revolts where, where faithful Jews physically defeated the Gentiles who had taken over the temple and all of this. And they were, they were persecuting the people. And they, that's, the, that's how they were thinking that this is like another Maccabean revolt and we're going to fight and either win or we're going to fight to the death. And uh, the Jews celebrated the, the Maccabean revolts. I think it's, it's Hanukkah, right? Yeah. Hanukkah is the Jewish celebration of, of the Maccabean revolt that actually led to the Jews. Sorry, that's their being freed from um, the captivity after um, Esther. No, I think it is, it is Hanukkah. Yeah, I think it's Hanukkah. So, so um, uh, I mean, and the, so that was a celebrated event. And and if you were a man in Israel and a Jew, you were willing you were willing to fight. And that's likely the mindset that they have. But when Jesus, you know, isn't their captain and their king <laughs> for that kind of a fight, all of their courage evaporates. And they're bewildered. They just, they just can't figure this out. And, and their, their courage evaporates and, um, and, they, and they're going to all flee here in a moment. So, now we should not miss the fact that Jesus performed another miracle that at least those near Malchus must have witnessed. Right? This guy's got his ear cut off. He's bleeding all over, you know. He's got his hand on the side of his head. And he's all bloody, right? <laughs> and your ears really bleed a lot, right? Have you ever cut your ears? <laughs> I'm looking over at our nurse. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, the only thing I'm thinking of is they're not very 
they're not very vascular. Okay, I don't know. It just seems like, boy, you just nick them with your razor. You know, how do you, get, how do you old guys get your hair off your ears? Am I the only one that has that problem? David, you're old enough. Anyways, you just barely nick your ear, and it really, it really bleeds. <laughs> so now you know that I have to shave my ears. <laughs> anybody, anybody else in there have to shave their ears? Come on. I use tweezers. You're not old enough. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. What's that? I know. I haven't broken down for one of those. I, I, I. I uh, Anyway, so anyways, they witnessed another miracle, didn't they? I mean, this guy's got his ear lobbed off. He's bleeding all over the place. And Jesus just, boom, puts, that, puts him back together like that. But they are not deterred from their pursuit. Now, this callousness to miracles is due to the fact that they had witnessed many miracles. Or at least they had heard many credible, credible accounts of such miracles. And remember, after Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together. Remember what they said? They said, what shall we do? This man works many signs. I know the answer to the question. Believe in him. <laughs> no, that, no, no, no. I, I just love that interaction. You know, what shall we do? Believe in him. And that's the same today as it was then. But of course, that's not what they mean. But you notice, they know he works all these miracles. They confess him. They're, they're just used to him working these miracles. So, he, so, and so these representatives of the priests and the scribes that are there, Jesus working another miracle isn't going to stop them from arresting him. They've seen all kinds of miracles. That's their problem. They've got to get him to stop working miracles. They have no doubt that he works many signs. And so that, that's the level of callousness at this point with the hardened, unbelieving Jews. And, uh, and I think that kind of explains why, let's, you know, I mean, they all fell back on the ground also, didn't they? Uh, j just, you know, a few minutes earlier. Uh, so they're very hardened and calloused, even though Jesus works another miracle here. Uh, so <clears throat> now what happens... Uh, Everybody's calmed down. It's not a sword fight. Malchus is healed. Now Jesus takes time and he addresses, he addresses the mob now, beginning in verse 55. So in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. So he, he's speaking to the mob now. And uh, <clears throat> he remains in control. The whole, he's, he has the whole situation under control. And uh, he questions them. Now, the New American Standard 
translation here, there's some variance about the term robber or um, <clears throat> have you come out to arrest me a man inciting a revolt? That's how the, that's how the translation of, of the New American Standard goes, right? I'll get back. Hold on just one second. Right here. Uh, have you come out? Um, oh. It's the later New American Standard Version that, cha that changed it to what I have quoted there in my, in my notes there. Uh, to arrest me, a man inciting a revolt. And that's probably the better, the better translation because the, the term used here in the BDAG lexicon has a second meaning. And the second meaning is revolutionary, insurrectionist, or guerrilla, end quote. And I think the context kind of favors that second definition of the term that you'll pull up in the lexicons uh, because that is how they came out. <laughs> they came out to him as if he is leading a revolt, okay? And we got a microphone here, we got a question. Okay, take that back with you. So I was wondering, why do you think Jesus provokes them if he wants the scriptures to be fulfilled? He said, why, why are you coming at me now with clubs? I mean, why does like, he provoke them? I mean, he's pointing out their guilt, their wrongness, their unjustifiable behavior. Yeah. He's given them no, whether it's robber or insurrectionist, they have no valid reason to approach him like that. Well, it wasn't just because they came out at night not to doing due process. Well, yeah, but they came out at night because they were afraid of the crowd. But his point is, what they're doing is unjustifiable. They have no reason. He's never, he's never been a thief or a robber, and he's never been an insurrectionist. The, actually, he has just told Peter to put his sword away. And not only that, when they want to make him king, what did he do? He, 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 you know, he, fled, he said he would not allow them. So Jesus is saying, I sat in the temple four days. Did I teach about stirring up an insurrection? Absolutely not. So, that, so there's no, they have no, they're the ones who are like insane. Does that? Well, um, why, would, why would he say anything? Like, like just to prove their their wrongdoing? Sure, I think so. I think I think he resents how they're treating him. But I mean, he just he just told um, Peter and everyone that wanted to take the swords out, and he said, "Then you know the scriptures won't be fulfilled." So why why doesn't he save his breath and not say anything? It seems like he's almost going against what, his will. I don't know. I mean, so why do you think yeah. he said it? I mean, 
I agree with what you said, but it, it doesn't yeah. doesn't correlate to what mm. he was trying to say because he said, you know, I want I want you to do that. So why does he even pause? Just it seems. Oh well, he he is not fit. This is not fatalism. They're responsible, and he's pointing that out. He's pointing out the unjustness of his death, of what they're doing. Yeah. They're committing a gigantic injustice, and he's pointing that out to them. They, they don't have a leg to stand on. They have no evidence against this man, and they're on the verge of committing a gigantic injustice, and he's pointing that out to them. He, he's making them all the more responsible, by 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 what he has said to them you know he's aggravating their condemnation so and i and i think he does personally resent that you know i mean you know why they're treating him like a robber you know i i think one of the commentators i don't know which one say he said that yeah he personally resents how how they're treating him i mean that's not a sin i mean he's human right He's a true man. He he's a he's a true man here, and and he's speaking in his own defense. So that's that's the answer. I mean, maybe there's a better answer, but th th those are those are my my answers. Leave the micro. Just take the microphone back back with you, so it's out there. Anybody else with a with a question on that? Okay, so um, let's keep going. Um, yeah, Jesus points out the absurdity of their behavior, and he states the evidences to the contrary. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. Okay, all right. And Jesus' teaching actually disappointed many because he refused to be crowned king, didn't it? Many were disappointed in Jesus, and after John chapter 6, they didn't even follow him any longer. And because he was not sounding like the previous uh, insurrectionists who were going to lead a rebellion. And uh, Judas, of course, we've talked about Judas, and Judas probably gave up on Jesus when he really finally realized that that Jesus is never going to take this power and begin to reign in this political, uh, kingly, earthly kind of sense. So, um, so there were no reasons to ar arrest Jesus in this manner except misguided ones in their own minds. Jesus then answers his own question, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So he does say that. And um, we immediately think of he was numbered among the transgressors, don't we? We think of that prophecy. We also think they hated me without a cause. And, uh, and the builders rejected him. And so all this was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so that's another time that Jesus says that on, on this evening. Uh, now Luke adds a final chilling um, statement. Luke adds this, but 
This is the end of Jesus' discourse. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The clear implication of Jesus' statement is that the power for them to do this evil has been given to them. It is their hour. You see that? This is your hour. That power has been given to them. They are in control of that hour. Given to them by the Father. And Edward says, quote, They are free to kill God's Son and servant, and they will. But they are not free to, de to determine the consequences of killing him. So I, I, I like that statement. They're, they're free to kill him. And they've been given the power of darkness. They've, this is their power to do this. But the consequences of killing him, they are not free to determine what those consequences are. And we know, of course, those consequences are going to massively defeat the power of darkness as a result of them having their hour. He's going to massively defeat the powers of darkness. So... It, to me, it is a, it, the whole thing is a chilling statement as this thing unfolds. Um, all right, so now at this point, Jesus is done speaking to the multitude. The disciples all forsake him at this point. They all forsake him. When Jesus finished speaking, then, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Uh, let's go right back here. Okay, yeah, so then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They all had pledged to die. They all fled. We notice they all pledged to die, but at this moment, they all fled. If they couldn't fight with their physical swords to save Jesus, they fled instead. They didn't stick with him. They, they fled. Now, what were they thinking at that moment? How deep did their doubt regarding Jesus go at that moment? I think it was awfully deep. I think it went very deep at that moment. There's an apologetic value here regarding the resurrection. These men were not going to steal Jesus' body three days later and plan a mock resurrection. They fled at that moment. Their thoughts must have been similar to those on the road to Emmaus. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. I, I mean, I don't know, I can't speculate, but I, I suspect at that moment they went deep into doubt. Jesus really isn't the Messiah. I, I suspect those are the thoughts that were rifling through their head. They cannot understand this. That we're not even, we're not, we're not even to, to, to try to save our Messiah's life. We're not trying to save our King's life. Every godly warrior in the Old Testament 
would rather die than the king die, right? And whatever you did in the theocracy is you saved the king. And, and, and that's not what they're called to do. I, I suspect those, and, and they fled. I mean, a minute earlier, they're going to fight to the death. But not now. Not now. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of, some of what I'm saying is speculation, but... but um, so, the apologetic value here, of course, is at that moment, they're dismayed, and that's the state they're in until the resurrection. They don't get out of this state until the resurrection. And so these guys aren't, over the weekend, planning a deception to steal the body and say, he's risen. That's what I mean. There's apologetic value in uh, seeing the mental, emotional state of Jesus' disciples at this juncture. And that condition continues until the resurrection. They continue in that state that they demonstrated right here until the resurrection. So uh, they're not doing a plot to overcome the, the Roman soldiers at the tomb. Um, all right, so there's some of, okay. Their thoughts, okay, I already said that. Now, it's likely at this time that the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's coming from John. I don't think Jesus was bound when he was speaking to the multitude there, but at this time, Jesus addressed them, and at that time, they bound him, arrested him, and bound him. Coming, that's coming out of John. Um, so um, Matthew, Matthew reports, let's keep going now, Matthew reports that Jesus was led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So let's just hit that for a second. They're already assembled. <laughs> so Judas that night showed up, and boy, they, everybody went into action. The, 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 the Roman soldiers came out, Pilate had them ready, the temple police... They go out, Judas leads them out to the Mount, to the Mount of Olives, to the garden. In the meantime, when all that's happening, the other scribes and Pharisees are all assembling at the high priest's house. And so they're assembled and they come back with, they're going to come back with Jesus. Now, <clears throat> uh, we got to explain our high priests here a little bit. Um, okay. Annas, John says, Jesus was first led away to Annas, if you read that in John 18. Matthew reports that Jesus was led away to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas was disposed by the secular authorities in A.D. 15. One of the reasons that the Jews hated the Romans is the Romans would appoint who their high priest was. And that was just another reason that many of the zealot Jews hated the Romans. They said the Romans have no authority to appoint over us who Israel's high priest is, but the Romans wanted to plug in the guy they felt was most favorable to the kingdom. 
and Annas was in bad favor with the Romans, and they disposed, they disposed him from the office of high priest, and they put in Annas's son-in-law, who is Caiaphas. Okay. However, many of the Jews did not acknowledge Caiaphas as the high priest. They still considered Annas to be the high priest and thumbed their nose at whatever the Romans wanted to do. And so it's like we have, amongst the Jews, we have like two high priests. And you can actually see this in, um, in Luke. In Luke chapter 3, verse 2, Luke writes, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John. So Israel doesn't have two high priests, but yet Luke writes, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word came to John. So in the, amongst the Jews, they viewed either one of those men as their high priest. And Annas was very uh, deeply involved in the affairs of, of Israel, as you see his involvement here as Jesus is brought to Annas. Both Annas, we'll see that as we go forward, both Annas and Caiaphas likely have interactions with Jesus. Uh, but um, So in, anyways... I'm just pointing that out because people have said, well, there's errors in our Bibles because they don't get the high priest correct, is, is why I'm giving you that information uh, about the, these priests. Now, all the disciples fled, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, Matthew doesn't explain how Peter managed to get into the courtyard of the high priest, but John does. And uh, we do, John 18, John gives us the detail here for us. <clears throat> Let's read that. John references in here. Okay. okay. The officers arrested, arrested Jesus, bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was, for, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Okay, I'm going to sh- skip that for now. Um, okay, Simon Peter followed, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We'll talk about him in a moment. Now that now that disciple was known to the high priest. So now there's another disciple known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. The, the other disciple went with Jesus into the courtyard with the high priest, but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Okay. So that's how both Peter and John end up in the courtyard of the high priest. And the other disciple here knows the high priest. And the other disciple here also knows Annas' household such that he can speak to the servant girl that controls the gate and say, you know, let this guy in. And, and she responds to this other disciple and lets Peter in. OK? 
Okay? Would have been better for Peter had he not been let in because we see how this is going to unfold. But now Peter and this uh, and John are are in. Well, oh, I said it. Uh, <laughs> the other disciple followed at a, at a distance. All right. Um, what do I want to say here? Yeah, it was another disciple that followed at a distance, right? Yeah. So, um, who is this another disciple? Who was known to the high priest? Is he the beloved disciple in the, in the Gospel of John? You know, there's the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that most of us believe that is John. Okay, there are some conservative uh, solidly conservative people that don't believe that was John, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think the beloved disciple is John. Okay. But now we have another disciple. Uh, some doubt that he is, wondering how could a fisherman, the Apostle John, how could a fisherman be known in a familiar way uh, which the Greek word known implies, the Greek term here known, he was known to the high priest, that term Im- implies um, uh, um, somewhat of a familiar, intimate knowledge of the high priest, not just a passing, you know, distance knowledge. He was known to the high priest. So they say, how could a fisherman be known to the high priest? Uh, some say, well, we're pressing our idea of the rich and the poor into Jerusalem at that time, and that really wasn't the case. People who were way down there on the economic scale could be known and interact with people that were way up, and there's a lot of discussion about that. Though I do find it, if it is John, John's a Galilean, Right, John, John, and his fishing operation and all that is in the north in Galilee. So, how does a Galilean fisherman in the north know the family of the high priest in the south? I mean, if I was arguing that it's not John, that's one of the things you know I would bring out. And um, I'm just trying to get you to think through all the historical details uh, regarding some of these things. So. Um, <clears throat> John is not, however, John is not hesitant in his gospel to mention other disciples. Okay? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, he names them. So why doesn't he name this guy if it's not John himself? Okay? So he, but he doesn't name this guy. So he seems only to refrain from mentioning the name of the beloved disciple, which makes it likely that the beloved disciple and another disciple are the same person. Okay. Could be the same person. He's referring to himself again. But one could reason, if this is the case, then why didn't John simply write, and Simon Peter followed, followed Jesus, and so did the beloved disciple? Why did he go out of his way to say 
another disciple followed him? Why didn't he just refer to himself the way he referred to himself earlier? Or the disciple whom Jesus loved followed him? Why does he switch to another disciple here? Because that's what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we don't have enough time to have a lecture about the divine element and the human element in Scripture. I, I love Matthew, and, we, and uh, that, is, that is true. Done. Let's not study this anymore. Uh, that's what the Holy Spirit had him write. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> very good, Matthew. So, now, I, I, th- I have an answer, I think, to my own question. And nobody, no other commentator mentioned it. Nevertheless, the other thing about this another disciple, his behavior with Peter makes me think it is John because John and Peter are closely connected. So it is not surprising that we find John and Peter following from a distance. We see them run to the tomb together, don't we? John and Peter are often connected together. And so I think the, another disciple is John, uh, and they are following Jesus uh, from a distance, and they ran together to the tomb. And perhaps John did not feel it appropriate to refer to himself in this context of fleeing as the beloved disciple. So that's where I uh, leave it rest. <laughs> Maybe he thought, this isn't appropriate for me to call myself the beloved disciple when I'm fleeing. <laughs> so, okay, wow, you know, we're down to the, to the naked guy running through the forest. <laughs> I thought we'd get through this faster. Um, Mark. I'm going to go through this real quickly, and uh, we'll do it in five minutes so we can finish up. Um, Now, Mark, we have another unnamed person in Mark chapter 14. And this will go fast because nobody's ever been able to answer these questions. Then they all forsook him and fled, and Mark gives us this final piece of information. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. End of account. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. So... Um, who is this? We have this anonymous individual mentioned this time by Mark. Who is he? And what is he doing outside at night with no clothes except a linen, a linen cloth wrapped around him, around his body? And who are the men that tried to seize him? The young is a textual variant, by the way. Some of the texts just say, and certain men tried to seize him. And one text says a young man. But we don't need to get into that. 
So, uh, and who are the ones who have tried to seize him? Um, he fled, and his pursuers tried to restrain him. All they ended up with is a linen cloth, and he fled the rest. He fled naked. Why did Mark include this in his account? No one has come up with convincing answers to any of these questions. Now, in the last few centuries, the consensus leans a little toward this young man is actually Mark himself. That's kind of been the consensus, but that's only 150, 200 years old as to who in the world this, this guy is. And uh, Mark, Mark is leaving this intentionally undefined. One suggestion is that this was an anonymous signature of the author of the book. But in order for that to work, there must be an oral tradition or some common source of knowledge that the readers would read that and say, oh, I know who that is, <laughs> right? In other words, if, if this is an anonymous signature, it's, it's Mark's way of saying, I wrote this gospel, then people must know that story and that that is Mark. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this was oral tradition or common knowledge. So uh, that's one of the theories, the signature theories. Others have tried to forge a connection between Mark 14, 51, 52 and Mark 16, 5 which refers to the appearance of a young man in a long white robe in the empty tomb. Mark 16, verse 5, And the women entering the tomb, they saw a young man, well, that relates to Mark, that's the same word, a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. So, I don't think that's very strong. They try to say there's this, this young man sitting in the tomb is also the man that fled. Uh, so that's, I don't think that's very strong. And it's also difficult because Matthew and Luke refer to these, these young men in the tomb. There are two in Luke's account as angels Okay, in Luke's account. So, also, as to how this young man ends up outside with only a linen cloth on, on his body, you know, one can only conjecture. One probable conjecture is this, and when I say the most probable, the most probable, which doesn't mean it is probable, <laughs> is that sometime... Late that night, after he was asleep, with only a linen cloth, he was wakened and realized the mob was on its way to address, arrest Jesus. He grabs whatever he has and bolts out of the house, trying to get to Jesus before the mob and warn him before it's too late. He's not going to take time to get dressed. He's asleep. Somehow he knows the mob is on its way to arrest Jesus, 
and he grabs his linen bedcloth and wraps it around and shoots out of the house and tries to get there before the mob. That wasn't my thinking. I think that, that came from William Hendrickson, I think. It had to say that as a possible thing. So, but he gets there too late. The fact that others, the temple police or Roman soldiers, attempt to seize this another disciple, another man, attempts to seize him, raises more questions. Was this young man the only person besides Jesus they attempted to arrest? You see, if you drop this out, we don't see any attempted arrests for anybody else. Jesus even says, let these go. But for some reason, this guy gets pursued, and they try to lay hold on him, and he, and he manages to escape and leave the linen cloth behind. So why did they seek to arrest him? Or did they try to arrest others? It seems unlikely that they search for others since Peter and John followed the mob at a distance. And they, if they were searching for Peter and John, they would have found him. They probably would have found them. But they're really not searching for the others. What the mob is doing is, is they are escorting the insurrectionists to the high priest. And so the mob is following and delivering Jesus to the high priest. They're not out on a mission to to arrest his disciples. So I don't know why they tried to lay hold of this fellow. I don't know. So um, there. And why Mark included this in his account? Very, very mysterious. Any thoughts or questions? Brian? Um, it... It does seem interesting that uh, the statement about the one following him is to differentiate him from the other disciples. Would that be fair, that the one following, while all the disciples, well, most of the young, the disciples were young men, including John himself, um, the one that's following after is not the one that has fled um, from the verse before. Um, let's see, we're talking about Mark, right? Yeah. Okay, now a certain young man that followed him. Well, right before that it says they all left him and fled, and then someone's yes. following. So that, um, as this possibility you had mentioned from this one theologian, that whoever figured out that they were going after Jesus or did or woke up was in bed clothes or whatever, not clothed, and just took what he had and, and went after to see what was going on. Um, but that it, that it wasn't one of the disciples of the twelve. Yeah, I don't think it was. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty clear. Okay. Yeah, is that how you understand it? Yeah, because Peter yeah. and a, it's not one of the twelve. Yeah, Peter and John don't need um to guess where they're taking Jesus. They know who came out to arrest Jesus. So, in other words, the fact that they fled means. They don't have to wonder later when they try to get into the house like where they're going. Oh. Whereas the young man that's following is trying to see where they're taking him. Yeah. Um, and so, because he isn't seem doesn't seem to be aware of where they're taking him, um, since he's following at a distance. But yes, the followed him here. The him here is Jesus. 
Yeah, followed right. him in the crowd, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Excuse me, am I understanding both of you gentlemen correctly that you're saying you're saying that the guy that fled is not Mark? No, we're saying that the guy that fled with the linen cloth is not one of the eleven. He's not one of the eleven apostles, is what we're saying. Whether he's Mark or not, you know, we're still not we're not certain. Okay. Yeah. Mark put it in his gospel, so. That's correct. This one, this one that Mark talks about here is not, and Mark is not one of the apostles. He's, a, he's an author of the gospel, but he's not one of the apostles. That's correct. Yeah. But he is a disciple of Christ. I mean, sure, that, and so okay. are you. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I, I was hearing something different from, that makes well, sense. I was hearing well, it, from it's guys. difficult at times. Sometimes we use the term disciple to just refer to the 12, and other times we, and the New Testament does that too. So is, there is some ambiguity when we, with the term disciple. It can mean any of us, or it can mean the twelve. And so, don't be too hard on yourself for for not understanding that. <laughs> Any, anybody else? Okay. Oh, all right. Let's do Lori first, and then we actually got an online question. I forgot to encourage people to to chat in their questions. It's also interesting because the ones that fled originally the, of the 12 that were with Jesus fled from Jesus. They fled from him. They, they ran. And this one guy, whoever this person is, is following, but he fled from man. He didn't flee from Jesus. He still was there with him, but he didn't flee. Like It seemed like the other ones. It's almost like the ones that fled from Jesus were... You know when there's a movement and people are like, oh, we're following this movement. We're following this man, Jesus. Oh. Right, and then they fled because they were like, "Well, who are we following? Are we following Jesus, or are we following the movement?" And in that moment, they realized the movement that they were following was not yeah real. Whereas this guy was just whoever it was, wasn't so much following the movement. He was following Christ. He wanted to see where he were taking him. He didn't follow follow because like he was he wasn't scared per yeah. se. So anyway, I, I, it's just I, a different way to look at it. But I think maybe you're I saying think. let me let me see it, let me say it a different way and see if I'm understanding you. When, when it says they all fled from Jesus, maybe their, their real motivation there is, I want to disassociate. Is that, is that kind of what you're suggesting? Well, yeah. I mean, because if, yeah. if you're following a movement, per se, in that moment, they're, they're just like you said they were. They, they, they weren't sure, like, this is not the person we thought it was. This person yeah. is not doing what we thought he yeah. was going to do. Oh, and then they had to reevaluate yeah. everything. I mean, it would be like any of us in the Christian life, but come to know the Lord as our Savior, obviously. And... Are we following Christ? Or are we yeah. following the movement of yeah. the church and the evangelical movement in and of itself? And in that moment, you have to reevaluate everything. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. You're going to have to talk if you keep hanging on that microphone. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. All right. Oh, yeah. No, Alexis has her own microphone, so go ahead. So Rachel Kruger called out her dad in the comments. She said, John Dalby needs to shave his ears. <laughs> Say that. Not, what's John that? Dalby needs to shave his ears. You're not alone. <laughs> oh, ha, ha, ha. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Rachel. Somebody needs to shave their ears besides me. So 
So this chat thing is working out really great uh, <laughs> from our online uh, people. Very good. Well, we've gone way over, and Lord willing, we'll start um, the trial next uh, next Wednesday. We'll start going through uh, our Lord's trial. So uh, let's see. Uh, why don't you hand that microphone over to Matthew, and he's going to lead us in prayer as we finish tonight. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Christ, and and it's evident to you if I lie. I was hoping someone else would get the mic because you know I get nervous if asked to pray before the brethren. We are a poor, needy, and perverse people, and we love you. I love you, Father. It's good to see the faces and the brethren in Christ here today. It warmed my spirit when little Braden asked if he could sit next to me. That's such tender heart. Dear God, forgive us where we fell thee. All the sins that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, forgive us. Forgive us when we fell thee. Father, cast down our imaginations and every high thing that we exalt against you. Bring into captivity every perverted, wicked, satanic thought to the obedience of Christ. We need you, Father. And we here worship you in one mind, one body, one accord. And one day in paradise, Father, we're going to be in heaven, perfectly joined, no arguing, no bickering. Thank you, Father, for saving us. And Father, I'm so sorry that your son took my wrath. A virgin man of God took the wrath of this sinner. Be with us now as we depart in your son's name. We all pray. Amen.